been pre-booking tickets for months. The park needs a new attraction every few years in order to reinvigorate the public's interest, kind of like the space program. Corporate felt genetic modification would up the wow factor. They're dinosaurs, wow enough. Not according to our focus groups. The Indominus Rex makes us relevant again. The Indominus Rex. We needed something scary and easy to pronounce. Dinosaurs, wow enough. I love that line in the movie. How many of you guys have seen Jurassic, uh, Jurassic World? Yes, good. Good. So those of you who haven't, I promise I won't be spoiling it for you. I promise I will, uh, I will let you be the one that gets to, to watch it and see it. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of crazy things that take place in this movie. And I'm not sure about you, but I remember when the very first one came out, I was, uh, I was in high school. And uh, actually, I was just finishing high school, if that makes any of you, any of you feel older. Um, but uh, I was finishing high school, and my first question I have as I'm giving out candy this morning is, is what year did that actually take place? The first movie, 1992, is so close. 1993 is correct. Thanks, Mike. And uh, would you like Sour Punch, Sour Patch, or Whoppers? Just pick. All right, ready? Here we go. All right, so as we hold on to that and you think about that, I'm not going to ruin that movie for you either. If you haven't taken the last 22 years to actually see it, I'm going to give you a little bit of, uh, of background on it, though. In Jurassic Park, the original one that came out, a millionaire mogul, a billionaire mogul, uh, put together an island, bought an island, and he decided to create a park where he could genetically create dinosaurs. And in the process, before the park opened, he invites four people plus his two grandkids out to see it. Of those four people that go out and they, uh, they go out and check it out, my favorite character is Dr. Ian Malcolm. And Dr. Ian Malcolm is played by who for the second box of candy? Right over here? Jeff Goldblum is correct. Patch or punch? Patch. Okay, here we go. I'm going to not do that because that would be dangerous. All right, outside and touchdown. Um, so, uh, yeah, we have Jeff Goldblum, and a great character, and he's just this pessimistic scientist, and in the process of being pessimistic, he's basically saying, this is a really bad idea. This whole idea of creating dinosaurs is a really bad idea, and guess what? Nobody listens to him, and he turns out, in the end, to be right. Sorry to spoil that part of the movie for you. And then after that, they created two more movies, with dinosaurs in them. Jurassic Park 2, Jurassic Park 3, which were also bad ideas, both the movie and creating dinosaurs. And so as we look at that, that's where we are led into with Jurassic World. Jurassic World actually ties back to um, Jurassic Park. You'll see that in the film. If you didn't see it, you're, you weren't really paying too close of attention. But they, they have some different things where they refer back to it. And they refer back to the failures that it was. And yet, they still created a park again. And in that park, they created the same thing. And it seems to be successful, but they have these visionaries that are their leadership. And there's some great leadership quotes and great leadership ideas that are in this movie, both good and bad. As we see the leaders are pushing forward, they're pushing forward, and they want something else to, to make it bigger and better. They need the wow factor because the focus groups, they need to reinvigorate the program is what that clip said. And they're looking to push it forward and looking to push and push and push, and I understand that. I understand sometimes we can't just sit back and let everything else pass us by, but they're doing it for the name of entertainment, and they're doing it for the name of money. And that's a problem. 
because they were narrow focused on why they were doing it. And they were doing it because the focus groups wanted bigger, badder, meaner, and more teeth. That's what they said. That's what we want. We want bigger, badder, meaner, and more teeth. Well, guess what? They got it. And in the process of getting it, Chris Pratt, his character, tells them, hey, it's a bad idea. I'm not going to spoil the movie for you, but guess what? He was right. He was right. And you know, there's a lot of things we see, even as we see this movie, I think this movie really encapsulates culture to a T. It's our desire to have more. Our desire to have bigger, badder, more teeth. We see that as it all plays out. And as it plays out, even in culture out there, it also plays out in the church. We're always pushing for more. We're always pushing for the entertainment. We're always really, as sad as it sounds, we're pushing for the money. We want the bigger buildings. We want the light shows. We want the smoke. We want all of the concert-type atmosphere. And we want to push, and we want to push, and we want to push. It's because we're des- this desire for being a consumer is what it's all about. We want the consumers to have what they want. They need bigger, better, faster, meaner. More lights, more action, more entertainment, more feeling. Because we become desensitized. We become numb to what is. And we need to push forward. We need to push and we need to push and we need to push. But the problem is, in all of that, that's what we want. But we've forgotten what we actually need. Because there's a difference between wants and needs. There's a difference between the, the I have to have and I want to have. And people forget that. They get the two combined. They get, they get mixed up in which one's the most important. As, as I think about even the church, I think about what the church does. I think about how the church does it. And there are some churches out there that have some, some amazing things going on. And in it, there's some lights and smoke and and concert-like mentality, and you know what? They're drawing people in that need that. And I'm perfectly okay with those things. I'm not, I'm not talking badly about any of that unless they miss what we actually need, and that's Jesus. That's what we need. The one thing that we need is Jesus. In all of that, in all of the fluff and all of the things that go on, great, that's just icing on the top. The thing we need is Jesus. I've been able to go to many different countries, and in those many different countries, I've been able to walk into houses. I've been able to be a part of building churches. I've been able to sit through church services. In each one of those things, I look at this person as I'm sitting in their 10 by 10 house. My shed is bigger than their house. And in this corner, there's one chair. And in this corner, there's a bed, kind of mattress-looking thing made of hay. And in that corner is where they cook at. And they give me the one chair, and they're sweeping the dirt floors to make the dirt look better, and they have a smile on their face, and I think, how in the world do you have a smile on your face? Look what you were living in. Because in my desire, it's for more. In their desire, it's about Jesus. They're glad that I'm sitting in there, and I'm telling them about Jesus, and we're talking about Jesus because they're already Christians. I've gone to church services. I remember going down to Brazil and building a building that wasn't any bigger than this, and it didn't have lights. It had a roof, it had a stage and it had walls. And there were people crammed in there. And there were people hanging on the windowsills. There were people sitting outside wanting not the lights, not the smoke, not anything but Jesus. And they sat in there for hours, like two hours. And it was hot and it was sweaty and people smelled. And I was like, get me out. And they're like, give me more. I want more Jesus. They knew what they needed. Did the same thing in Cuba. Did the same thing in Ethiopia. Watched people just want Jesus. 
I think in America, our church, we've forgotten that Jesus is worthy. That's what he is. That's why we come. We don't come for us. We've been confused on the fact that I need, I need, I need, when really it's just I want, I want, I want, because all I really need is Jesus. And we miss that, and we've forgotten about it, and often we forget about the fact that it really isn't about us. And I've said it how many different times? I don't know. But it's not about us. It's about Jesus. We need to put ourselves aside. We need to put our wants aside. We need to put our desires aside. We need to put away our selfish ambitions and follow after him. But too often, too often we look at God and say, God, I know that you've created me. I know that this, but I've got this thing called life figured out. I've got it figured out. So, to you. And that's the Christian way. For the Christian birds, the turkey. You know, that's what we do to God, okay? You know, that's just it. We just say, get away, God. I've got it figured out. I don't need you anymore. And we say, God, you're good and all, but we want bigger, we want faster, we want more teeth. And you're not providing that for us, so I am going to do it. And we say, you know, I got to do this. And he says, no, 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 you don't. The one Jesus said, die to yourselves daily and follow after me, you know what he actually meant? To die ourselves daily and follow after him. And we say, no, God, you don't understand. That's not the way it works. And he's like, yes, yes, actually it does. That's exactly how it works. No, I got this idea for what's going to be in the future, and I've got this idea that I'm going to push forward and have bigger and better. And he's like, that's a bad idea. And we're like, ha, ah, it's not a bad idea. You know what the funny thing is about that, uh, that Jurassic Park thing? And we've seen it in the movies, and it was a bad idea. We've seen it in other movies that are all a bad idea. Did you know that scientists are actually trying to reverse engineer birds right now? Because they believe that birds came from dinosaurs. So they're trying to reverse engineer a bird to turn them into a dinosaur. Guess what? They say it's going to be done in about 10 years. It's a bad idea. I'll tell you that now. The movie showed it. Let's just follow that and just call it good, okay? I don't need a dinosaur. I don't need to see a dinosaur. I'm really okay with not being eaten by a dinosaur. That's just where it's all at. But we get into this, I'm going to do, I'm going to do, and I don't need God to be a part of it. And he says, you're going to reap what you sow. You're going to reap what you sow. And you know what? The things that we get, and we start to realize the more things we push forward with, we fail to consider literally the monster that we're creating that is going to eventually eat us alive. Whether that monster be debt, or that monster be bad relationships, or that monster be whatever it is, and it follows along, and it's going to eat us alive in the end. And people are going to say, well, you made your bed, you have to sleep in it. Why? Why do we make those decisions? Why do we push God aside? Why is it going on? Well, I would like to say we are the first generation to ever have that happen to. But it's been happening for generation upon generation upon generation. Even God's chosen people did it. Even God's chosen people said, who knows me better, God or me? We have that battle. And as we look at it, we'll, we even look at it last week. If you were with us last week, we talked about Joshua chapter 24, and he said, who are you going to serve? Who are you going to follow? As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And if you choose not to, guess what's going to happen? It's going to turn out poorly for you. It's going to turn out poorly for you, and yet they kept doing it. God's chosen people who were walking in fellowship with God, they continued to do it. 
What I want to do today is I want to look at another Old Testament story. And as we look at this other Old Testament story, it's again a transfer of leadership. Just like Joshua was transferring leadership last week, this week it's going to be a guy by the name of Samuel who's transferring leadership. And he calls all the leaders together to tell them about this transfer of leadership that's going to be taking place. And they demand something a little bit different than the week before. So if you have your Bibles, open it to 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you don't have your Bibles, I did something I haven't done in a couple of months. And that is, I actually put this on version. So if you have the version live, you can pull that up and you can follow along with the notes and all the questions and everything we have there. Um, so, 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'm going to read this for you, and it's 22 verses long. But I want you to kind of see, and I want you to kind of feel the way we are today, and the way the Israelites were back then, and, and see the similarities, and, and maybe see the differences. And see as even Samuel says, this is a bad idea because, and they say, hey, we'll see how that goes. And then we'll see the result of it. So 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 1, it says this. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in the ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to the deeds that I have done, or they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. But, so basically he's saying, tell them it's a bad idea. They want a king. God's been their king for 300 plus years. He's led them into victory. He's done all this. And they say, no, we want a king. He says, Samuel, go tell these people it's a bad idea. So the next eight verses are the bad idea, the things that are going to happen if you do this. This is what he says. Verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord of the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for him commanders of thousands and commanders of 50 and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and make his implements of war and equipment of his chariots. Basically saying, you guys want a king? You're going to lose your sons to war. You're going to lose these guys because he's going to make them go to war where God was leading them in war in a different strategy. He's also going to take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out for relief because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Are you ready for this? This is what's going to happen. This is where it all lays out. Their response is, but the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. Stupid, 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 stupid. I mean, all of us, everybody was, well, do I want to be free? 
and have my kids and be able to be led by the Lord? Or do I want to be led by a man and have my kids become slaves, have me become slaves, have my kids lost to war, lose all my crops, and give up all my best stuff to him? Which one sounds better? Come on. Which one sounds better? And what do they say? Nah. We don't believe you. We need a king. As a matter of fact, they said, No, there shall be a king over us, that we may be all like the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. That's the end of chapter 8, picking up in verse, or chapter 9. That's where Saul comes in. And Saul is the first king of Israel. And Saul is exactly what they want. He has the skin. He has the bones. He has all the flesh. He has the good looks. He's a head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He's strong. But guess what? He's human. He's human. He's not God. They wanted a king, and they were given a king. And we see shortly the result of all of that. But even as we look at this, even as we look at this, I want to pray. I want to pray that God speaks through this message. I want to pray that it's not my words. I want to pray that God be glorified in this and not man and not me and not say, look what I said, but look what God has to say to each and every individual heart that's in this room because all of us are like this. All of us are sinners that have walked away from God. All of us have taken steps in our own direction to say, eh, I understand the consequences, eh, I understand the ramifications, yet I am going to choose to go my way. So I pray, I pray today that God would speak to your individual heart. Not think about anybody else, not think about what anybody else is doing, but think about your heart and how you are, and that he speaks to you the same way he's been speaking to me for the last 24 hours. As I have just sweat over this and just grieved over this message, not even wanting to give it. I was up till 2 o'clock on Friday night, Saturday morning, just tearing this apart and going over and over again, saying, oh God, I don't, don't want to do this one. And literally, I started a message, finished it, crumpled it up, threw it away, started a message, finished it, crumpled it up, threw it away. This is the third one. That God said, this is what you have to say. And I'm like, I don't want to say that. So I pray that God speaks to you like he spoke to me. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for you. But sometimes we forget how amazing you are and what you've done for us and where you're leading us. God, I pray this morning that you speak to our hearts. You speak to our minds. That you help us put away our selfish desires. Help us to put away our wants and follow after you. We pray it all in your name. Amen. I read this passage. This is the passage I was going to do. This was the passage that I wanted to do because Jurassic Park, um, I'm not sure if you guys know this, the, the dinosaur that they create. Anybody know what it's called? The last thing of Sour Patch Punch straws here? What's it called, Cam? Not quite. Indominus Rex, right here. Yes, sir, here you go. And as they create the Indominus Rex, I don't have any more candy to give out. Does anybody have any idea what the Indominus Rex means in Latin? Rex means king. Indominus means untamable. Untamable king. They created the untamable king, and I'm like, doggone it, this is the message we're going with right here. And Israel wanted an untamable king. Like, how perfect is that? That's the message I'm going with. And as I laid out there, I said, you know, 
This is, this is the title for the message. Be careful what you ask for, because you might just get it. Be careful what you ask for, because you might just get it. Because isn't that the truth? In the passage that we read, I ask you to see the truths of today and, and look at the parallels of what the Israelites did and, and where were they. I mean, it's so obvious. It almost hurts that we continue to go through the same pattern, the same pattern, the same pattern. See, as a matter of fact, as you look at it, you look at America and you look at Israel and America is blessed and and Israel is God's chosen people. And as Israel had God and they were walking with him and they were blessed and he was pouring out his blessings on them and they were prospering and they were being used and they kept going and they had fellowship with him and they had peace and they had victory. In all of that, they continued to blow it. They continue to make the wrong choice and say, God, you don't know any better. We know better than you. And as that played out, we saw that the people of Israel weren't satisfied because they wanted more. And that's what we want. We want more. And we say, God, you don't know any better. You don't know what's supposed to be taking place here. You don't know. I know. I want more. We're not satisfied. The Israelites, they wanted a king you could look at. In the process of having a king you could look at, they wanted a king that they could lift up and say, look how awesome our king is among all the other nations. Look at him. Look at him. Instead of saying, look at God and what God has done. And they wanted a king with flesh. And they wanted a king with blood. And they wanted someone they could flaunt and be proud of and represent themselves everywhere. See, I think Israel was tired of being looked at as a bunch of crazy people following an invisible God. Because you know where they took their orders from? Without a king, you know where they took their orders from? A box. I know that dumbs it way down, and maybe not theologically completely accurate, but wasn't God in an ark that the priest once a year went to? This ark was made of wood and gold, and he would sprinkle blood over it and listen to what God had to say, and as God spoke to him, he would go out and tell everybody what was going on, and that's how they took their orders? Doesn't that sound just a little bit crazy? Doesn't that sound maybe just a little bit about how the world says, how can you be listening to an invisible God who we're not even sure exists? And they're doing everything they can to prove that he doesn't. And the people of Israel said, we just want to be normal. We're tired of being different. We're tired of being strange. We want to be just like everybody else. We want to be like all the other nations and have a king. And the Bible says that Samuel took exception to it. And not only did the Bible say that Samuel took exception to it, but God took exception to it. And why? Why would he take exception to it? This is the reason why. Because we were never called to be normal. We were never called to be like everybody else. We were called to be different, to be set apart. The word holy means to be set apart. That's it. That's what we are called to be, and that's where we should be. But we want to be normal. The thing is, is normal, somehow the Israelites failed to recognize that normal is what got all the other nations into trouble in the first place. And so right from the very beginning, God told his people that he didn't want them to be normal. Right from the very beginning, back in the book of Leviticus chapter 18, he actually says, I don't want you to be like anybody else. Listen to what it says, Leviticus 18 verses 1 through 4. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. That's verse 2. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, which I'm bringing you to. You shall walk or not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. 
See, the Canaanites were evil people. They did all sorts of evil things. And because everybody did it, it was normal. Because everybody else is doing it, that becomes the cultural norm. God said, I don't want you to be like them. I want you to be different. I want you to stand out. And that's the reason why he kicked the Canaanites out and he put the Israelites in. Because he wanted that. But as God says, I don't even want you to come close to resembling normal. You know what the Israelites did? They made a decision in every instance, basically, as God's people, to choose to be the same. To choose not to get rid of the things that the Canaanites did. And to instead to, to be sucked into and to absorb the things that are going on around them. And, and be normal. In chapter 8, we see the Israelites again rejecting the desire for them to be different. And in doing so, rejecting God himself. Verse 7 says in chapter 8, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You know what the scary thing for me is in this? Because I don't think the Israelites actually realized they were rejecting God. They thought they were just doing what they felt was right. Of course, we know the Bible says that what's right in the man's eyes leads to death. But they thought that what they were doing was right. They were being blinded by their own selfish ambition, their desire for more. They wanted to have a king. They wanted to be like everybody else. They wanted it, and they weren't going to take no for an answer. Who's that sound like? Sounds like every single one of us. When we have that want, when we have that desire, it, it, it's that drive that's behind us. And sometimes it's a good thing, and sometimes it's a bad thing. In this case, for the Israelites, it was a bad thing. A lot of times, in our case, it's a bad thing. Americans, especially Christians in America, look a lot like the Israelites did back then. We, like them, are called to be different. We, like them, choose to be tugged and pulled to be the same, to forget about God's call in our lives and just live like a normal human being. I mean, how many times have you had the desire in your heart just to be like everybody else, just to have a weekend free, just to not have to go to church, not have to be a part of that? How many times have you written out your tithe check and in the process of writing that out and say, man, I could do so much more with this 10% to put it someplace else? How many times have we done that? I mean, car payment, pay down debt, all those things, those things go through our minds saying, does God really need, did God really say? We talked about that last week. Did God really say? And as we lay that out, we're saying this, we say, you know, we really need to have all these strings attached to us. I just want to be a normal person like everybody else. And I'm not saying we're all like that, but I'll tell you what, I have been. I am guilty of that. There's more than one time I said, do I have to do this again this weekend? Yeah, it's kind of my job. You know, but that's, that's our mentality. We head into these things and we forget about that. And, and in reality, when it comes down to it, we start thinking like that, we begin a process for, of not rejecting church, not rejecting a preacher, but rejecting God himself. Now, of course, we'd never say that because that sounds bad. That sounds like it hurts our feelings. We don't want our feelings hurt, so we just classify it as normal, that it's okay. We justify what we want to do. And, and as I look at that and I said, you know, how in the world could we possibly avoid this? 
How can we not fall into the trap? And I think there's four questions that we have to be very honest with, us, with ourselves and ask. And in the process of being honest with ourselves, we have to answer them honestly. And these are the four questions I have for you. The four questions, number one is this. Do you assume there's a better way than God's way? Do you assume there's a better way than God's way? See, God had been king over Israel for over 300 years. In those years of him being the king, you know how many battles Israel lost? Zero. You know, the way they won their battles wasn't by military strength. As a matter of fact, maybe you remember Jericho. How did they win at Jericho? How did they break down that giant impenetrable wall? That's right. They played trumpets. That's ridiculous. But that's the way God works sometimes, to show his power and to show his might. And he was doing that for Israel for over 300 years. And someday, some fool got together and said, you know what? That's all good and all, but we want to be a little less different. We want to be a little less weird. Uh, we don't want to win with trumpets. I'll win with whatever, just to let you know. But the, the whole thing is, as long as I'm winning... But the, but the thing is, is that they said, ah, oh, we need somebody with flesh and blood. And so they asked for a normal king. And God gave them a normal king. And if you go four chapters later in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, it says this. This is the answer to it all. You said to me, no, but I, but a king shall reign over us. We just read that. That's what he said. And when the Lord your God was king. And now behold, the king you have chosen, from whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. They're complaining, saying, we got this king. And they're like, yeah, you asked for it. You asked for it. And you asked for a normal guy. And guess what a normal guy is going to do? He's going to do normal things. All those things that I talked about in those eight verses after I said, hey, he's going to take your stuff. And hey, he's going to take your kids. And he's going to send you guys off to war. And he's going to make military blunders. And he's going to be a little egotistical. And he's going to take things for himself. And he's going to take the pride and everything on himself. That's a problem. Remember when I said that? Yeah, that's happening. I told you that already. That's what was going to happen. He's going to abuse his authority. He's going to lose the respect of you people. Because he's a human being. Just like all the rest of us. And the crazy thing is, it didn't just stop with Saul. If you know anything about the, the history of Israel, 42 kings fell in line beyond that. And on the third king, the, 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 the country divided into Israel and Judah. Of those 42 kings, only 11 of them were deemed good. And of those 11, seven, by the end of the time they were done doing it, they were considered evil then. So really only four were good over the span of all of those years. You ask for a king. Be careful what you ask for, because you might just get it. And we saw that play out, and we see it all right there. The Indominus Rex, the untamable king. You know anything about the movie? They do some genetic splicing and dicing. They think they've got it all figured out. It went wrong. Sorry, but you can still see the movie. It's cool. But Israel is no longer a shoe in as far as victory went because they traded their unconquerable king for an untamable one. And still they thought things would be better their way than God's way. Aren't we the same? Doesn't it happen in so many areas of our lives? Don't we get disillusioned about the things that we think that we can control and the things that we think we can do to the point where we're willing to go against what God has said? in order to make it happen, in order to be normal, in order to fit in. 
I'm going to say some things right now that may or may not upset you. I'm going to go ahead and lay that out right now. I actually had one person get up and leave last night while I was talking. I would beg you not to do that because I want you to hear me to the end. That's what I say. Because what happened on Friday, I'll be very honest with you. I, I didn't know how to feel. It was a different day for me. Friday night when I saw the reaction of so many people celebrating on Facebook, when I saw the White House and the World Trade Center lit up like a rainbow, I, I honestly couldn't wrap my head around how exactly to feel. When I saw nine flawed judges, and yes, they're all human, just like us. When I saw nine flawed judges in robes trying to redefine something that the government had no no part of defining to begin with, because it's defined in Genesis 2, 24, well before anything's ever defined by, by any sort of government. They, they defined it there. It was defined, and we went in, and we made that unnecessary. And I didn't know how to think. My, my mind literally was a muddy mess. My, my heart was confused, but the thing is, I, I wasn't angry. There's was a lot of people that were angry. There's a lot of people that are overjoyed, and there's a lot of people that are angry, and man, they had it out on Facebook, and I just sat back and watched and went, this isn't what's supposed to happen. This isn't the way that it's supposed to be. And I watched it all play itself out, and, and I, I thought, you know, I, I could get on and, and let the world know exactly where I stand, but that's not going to do any good. That's not going to be where it's at. You know, I just preached two weeks ago when I talked about the commands that we are given to love God, to love others, to abide in Jesus, to proclaim his name, and to go and make disciples. When I talked about that, as that's what we're supposed to do, did that just get more difficult, or actually did it get easier? Which part is it? Where did it lay itself out? What, what was it that just took place? How do I balance out my conviction with kindness? How do I show grace and truth like Jesus did? Those are the questions that I wrestled with. That's the reason why I was up till 2 o'clock in the morning just trying to, to get everything out and say, what do you want, God? What do you want from me? What do you want from our church? What do you want from the church? How do you want the church to respond to this? And Jesus, he set an example for us when he came and lived. There's so many different examples of how he approached people in love. You look at the Samaritan woman. He approached her in love. You look at the rich young ruler, a guy who wanted to follow Jesus. He wanted to follow Jesus. And according to him, he'd obeyed all the commandments. And he'd done everything that he thought was necessary. And it sounded like he had everything he needed to have together. And Jesus said, hey, and it says actually in the Bible, he came to him in love. He spoke to him in love. It says that right there. So it wasn't like he was demeaning him. It wasn't like he was pounding him. It wasn't like he was saying, hey, you're wrong for this. Do it this way or else. He came to him in love and said this. There's one more thing I need for you to do. I need you to give up everything you have. I need you to give up all of your possessions, self to poor, and then come and follow me. He didn't just come to him in love and say, it's okay to be where you're at. He said, I want you to change. I want you to go give up everything in order to follow me. And the guy said, wait a second, but everything I have is my identity. Everything I have is how people know me. Everything I have is, is what defines me. If I give up all that, I give up all of me. And Jesus says, exactly. Because that's what he's called all of us to do, is to give up what we have that defines us and let him be the one who defines us. And he says, it's about following me, not about following your desires. 
And you know how he walked away? Grieved. Grieved. And as I thought about that, I, I finally had put my finger on how I felt on Friday. Grieved. Grieved at everything that took place. Grieved from the Supreme Court decision to the way that the Christian community reacted. I was grieved. My heart hurt. Because we are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. And yet we have so many people pointing fingers and doing this and saying this and celebrating that. And you know, as I, as I realized it and I felt that I was grieved, there was something that, that, that just shone brightly in my mind. And that is this. I am absolutely confident in the truth of Jesus Christ and the truth of his word. Absolutely confident in that. I'm confident in the fact that I need to do as I've been commanded, to love God, to love others, to love one another, to proclaim his name, to go make disciples. That is what I've been called to do, to abide in him, to plug myself into him. And that is what I need to do. But as a human, the, real, the reality of our world caused my heart to ache. It really did. It caused my heart to ache. I was grieved. I wasn't in a panic. I wasn't freaking out, even though there was a, a blatant rejection of God's ways for man. I said, when will we ever learn? Then I looked at myself in the mirror and realized that I haven't learned yet. I still do it myself. I blatantly reject God's ways for my own. Or the fact that I saw the future of my kids change on Friday. I hurt. I hurt for America. I hurt for our world. I hurt that we have taken a step away from God. One more step away. You know, I was even hurt. I, I wasn't angry. I wasn't overwhelmed when I saw the celebration of sin from the White House down. Or even when I saw the justification on why people should celebrate sin. The one thing that maybe tweaked me a little bit was the fact that they started using the word love in a very shallow and flippant way. Because marriage is so much more than a romantic feeling and a tax break. And, and that's the way they kind of portrayed it. And I said, no, 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 that's, that's not it. That's not, we are redefining, and that once again is where it hurt to see what my kids will grow up in because I want them to understand what marriage is really all about and we've dumbed it down and we've made it made it watered down and it hurts my heart it hurts my heart for what's going to be and i'll tell you the thing that grieved me the most even though all those things were were there the thing that grieved me the most is that i saw the manipulation of scripture of truth by christians to celebrate being normal when god has called us to be different because the truth has called us to be different. See, marriage isn't the battleground. The gospel is. The gospel is the battleground. The truth of the gospel is what is at stake. That is what is being attacked. And you know what? The people who are attacking it aren't people. It is not flesh and blood that is attacking us. It is the principalities that are attacking us. It is something beyond this world that is attacking us and trying to destroy what God has made. It's not people. That's why we love people, because it's not them. It's not their fault as much as the attack that's coming from elsewhere. Now, we're all guilty. So, yeah, we do have fault, but all of us have that same thing. All of us are guilty. And that idea of, of the Christians who have began and continue to believe and expand the lie that I was created by God for my own pleasure, that's the problem. 
And it's been around since the beginning, has it not? Isn't that why Eve was deceived to begin with? And it's deeply embedded in the church because we're all guilty, like I said. What can we eat? What can we touch? What can we watch? What can we do? What can we listen to? What can we engage in to satisfy my cravings, my needs? See, we have a tendency to point out the one thing that's making the news, but we're all guilty in something. We're all guilty to say, this is about me. The culture we are surrounded by screams, gratify your body with bigger, badder, meaner, more teeth. It's all about you. But yet we reject God's plan that we are created by him and for him. 1 Corinthians is very clear on that. We are created by him and for him. We've assumed there's a better way than God's way. What will the results be? What will the results be? That's the first question I want to ask. I know you're like, wait, you got three more? Yep. Do I make excuses to justify my own sinfulness? I'm getting a little hot up here, so I'm going to crank this down. Excuse me for a second. Do I make excuses to justify my own sinfulness? Look back what the Israelites said in Samuel 8.5. They're talking to Samuel, and they said to him this, Behold, you're old. Okay, excuse number one. Basically, you can't lead us. You're old. We need someone who can hold together the 12 tribes. And guess what? Excuse number two is, is your sons don't walk in your ways. We need somebody that's going to hold together the 12 tribes and your kids are kind of dumb and they're making bad choices and they're going to lead us the wrong way and we want to be led right. Sometimes we like to even tie God into the mix of our, our decisions and kind of uh, maybe manipulate that situation instead of taking it for the truth. That's what they're doing here. They're not good leaders. They're hypocrites. We need somebody who's going to lead us. And God's like, I have been leading you for like 300 plus years. But they missed that. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. We want to be like everybody else. We just want to fit in. We are willing to be more like our surrounding culture so we don't get judged as being separate, as being a holy roller, as even being labeled potentially a bigot. We don't want that. Guess what? You don't have to compromise your convictions to be compassionate. Jesus did it all the time. Jesus loved people where they're at, but he loved them too much to let them stay there. That is what we need to do. We need to love people where they're at, but not be okay with them continuing to stay there. I'm not okay with staying where I'm at. You should not be okay with staying where you're at. We need to be moving closer to him all the time. Israel had lots of excuses. They may not sound exactly like yours, but I bet yours might have something like this. You know, I'm not going to go to church anymore because they're all just a bunch of hypocrites anyway. We have an excuse. You know what? I look at pornography because my wife just isn't satisfying me. I'm going to flirt with that guy at work because my husband isn't meeting my needs. Or how about this one? I can't help it. This is the way I've always been. I was born this way. And we like to use that as an excuse. And of course, the first thing you might have popped in your mind is, well, Friday, yep, that's what it is. No, no, I'm talking about you. When you get angry and you start getting really upset and you say, well, this is the way I've always been. Guilty. Use that excuse. May have even used it this week. This is the way I've always been. This is what God made me to be. No, no, we're all born sinners. Yes, true. We all have a susceptibility to different types of sins in our lives. True. My family, big-time alcoholics. My family, big-time drug addicts. Guess what I've never even come close to? Because I'm afraid of what the results might be. We all have different susceptibilities to sins. 
all of us in different areas, all of us different weaknesses. How we respond to that is what matters, though. How we react in all of that is what matters. You know, when we start throwing people under the bus for the sins they have, l- listen to this verse here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. It's not up on the screen, I apologize. It's kind of one of those last-minute ones I threw in. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not be deceived? Neither the sexually immoral. Bet there's some guilty ones in here of that. Nor idolaters. Bet there's some guilty ones in here of that. Nor adulterers. Nor men who practice homosexuality. Nor thieves. Nor greedy. Nor drunkards. Nor revilers. Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We like to pick and choose which ones. That pretty much covers most of us in this room, if not all of us. The cool thing is verse 11. The next verse in there says, but you're not like that anymore because you've been washed in the blood. You've been purified through the sanctification that has taken place through Jesus Christ, God's Son, who came for you and died for you to live for you and raise again for you. And that lays itself out right there. And the thing is, though, is we still like to make excuses. And we still like to point fingers at people. We like to justify our sin. Why? Because sin... Well, I'll be honest with you. Sin can be fun. Just be flat honest. And when it's comfortable and it's fun, we want to justify why we do it. But the fact or matter it is, whether you admit it or not, when we make excuses to justify our sins, we are rejecting God. We're rejecting God and His ways. So the second question was, is do you make excuses to justify what you do? Third question is, do I disregard or ignore the consequences of my actions? Do I disregard or ignore the consequences of my actions? Samuel spent eight verses telling them all the things that could possibly go wrong. That not even possibly would go wrong. That would go wrong. Eight verses. They sat there and went, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. No, thanks. Samuel 8.18 says, In that day, you will cry out for relief because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. There are consequences to our actions. We know that, but guess what? We don't care or we choose to ignore that because we live in an immediate society and as long as I'm pleased now, it doesn't matter what the consequences possibly could be. It doesn't matter what slippery slope we are making and falling and sliding down that we don't even know, but when we finally start to realize that we're sliding, that we don't have anything else to grab onto and it's all downhill from there. We have consequences to our actions. Some things, they sneak up on us, but others were warned from the very start. To me, it's like the movie. See, and genetically, they're, they're splicing and they're dicing and they're creating in their own with no thought of the consequences to come. They wouldn't even tell Chris Pratt what was in that dinosaur. The genetic splicing and dicing as it came together because they knew he would be like, eh, bad idea. Well, sometimes we just don't want to hear anybody tell us it's a bad idea. We'd rather fight and say that we're right and then find out later that we actually were wrong. We like to do our own things. We do it with what we eat. We do it with how we eat. We do it with how we parent, the things we watch, the things we allow our kids to watch, the games we allow our kids to play, the things we touch, the things that we teach in school, the things that that we do just to normalize Christianity. And I'm not a prophet, I'm not Samuel, I'm not Nathan, I'm not standing up and saying this is the way it's going to be, but I have a pretty good feeling that those things are going to come back and bite us if they haven't already. Those are monsters that are going to eat us alive. 
and we have to be careful with it. And you might say, well, wait a second. Do you mean that God's going to let me endure the consequences of my own actions? Yes. Just like he did with his own people. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. And so it shouldn't come as, our, as a shock if, if our lives begin to fall apart because we're continuing to do things that God has told us not to do and our lives continue to fall apart and he says, if you do these things and you live this way, your lives will fall apart. We shouldn't be blown away that our lives fall apart. We shouldn't be blown away. At, at well before Friday ever happened, marriage was dumbed down. People living together first and then moving in and then doing, going through these things. That's not the way that God created. That's not what marriage was about. It was about a covenant between a man and a woman. When that got watered down, it was, divorce was so easy, so let's just do it. It was well before Friday ever happened that marriage was on all kinds of problems. But that's what happens. We have consequences to our own actions. That actually leads me to number four. Because this is one of the actions that we have that has consequences. Do you worry more about how you look than how you are doing? See, the Israelites weren't concerned about the spiritual state of the country. They were concerned about the way the country looked to all the other countries. 1 Samuel 8.20 said, then we'll be like all the other nations. Like I said before, they're tired of being looked at as fools, tired of having an invisible God who wouldn't let them make images of him to, to worship. Because he said, I want you to worship me, not an image in the form of me. And they were tired of not having somebody to point to as their leader. And they're tired of being different. And they weren't concerned about how do we get better. It was how can we make ourselves look better. How can we make ourselves look better? And when you're more concerned about how you look than how you are, you take a step away. See, a lot of people on, on Friday, they, they cheered and said, we've taken a step forward in America. And other people said, oh, we've taken a step back in America. And I say this, it's neither one of those. I think we've taken a step away from God. We've taken a step away from God because it's not about how we look to others. Because isn't it really should be about how our relationship is with God, where we are with Him? See, I'm not concerned about what everybody else thinks about as much as what God thinks. And that's the way we should be, but we're not. We have a tendency to worry about everybody else out there. So my question is, it's not what it looks like out here, it's what it looks like inside here, inside your heart. Where is your heart? How are things in here? How are things with you? Because, you know, this isn't a message about everybody else. This is a message about me, and this is a message about you. This is a message that calls us out. We need to throw off the masks. We need to get down to it right here. How are you doing in here? What sins are you allowing to consume you because you have this consumer mentality that I have to take in, have to take in, have to take in, and we're letting that monster grow, and it's beginning to eat us alive. What are we creating because we're appealing to that? How worried are you about what the world thinks versus about what God thinks? Like I said, marriage isn't the battleground. Our enemies aren't the ones trying to redefine it. The battleground is the gospel. And that the fight is not flesh and blood. We need to be careful not to replace patience, love, and prayer with bitterness, hatred, and politics. There's amazing forgiveness found in the blood of our king. There's amazing forgiveness found in him. You've all, I hope, have experienced it. If you haven't, we need to talk. We're about ready to sing a song as we wrap up today. And it says this, it's called You Are My King. And it says, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. 
I'm accepted, you were condemned. I'm alive and well, your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would come and die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true. It's my joy to honor you, and all I do, I honor you. Now, those last, what, six words there, my question is, is is it the truth? Because we're going to be singing it here shortly, and is it the truth? Is it our joy to honor him? In all we do, do we honor him? I don't. I don't. Everything I do doesn't honor him. Everything I do doesn't glorify him. But should it be? Should I be striving for that? Absolutely. Do I always? No. Because guess what happens? I get myself in the way. So I want to ask you as Jerome and the band comes up to sing that as we sing this song, to make this a prayer of repentance, to make this a prayer of saying, God, I'm sorry. I failed you. I might be pointing at everybody else and saying, look how they failed or look how they failed, but I want to put put the fingers back on me. My kids, they, they do a funny thing where they say, hey, if you're pointing one finger, there's three fingers pointing back at you, so they do this now, so they don't have any pointing back at them to point. But isn't it the truth? We like to point fingers and don't want anything pointed at us. This is between you and God. I'll be down here to pray with you if you'd like. I'm going to sit down here in the front row, but really this is between you and God. We have to come to a time of repentance. And I know there's a lot of times that we come to church and we're hoping for a feel-good feeling. I'm sorry, this is probably not that one. This is the one where we get down on our faces before God and say, God, I am sorry. I have dropped the ball on what you've called me to do. I have chosen my own ways over yours, and I want to, in everything I do, honor you. So even as I sing this song, I want to lift this up and say, God, continue to work on me. Continue to change me. Continue to grow me closer to you instead of me stepping away from you. That's my challenge to you today. I'm going to pray and invite the band to come. Father, we are so thankful for who you are. We're so thankful that you have spoken to us. You've spoken to me. Because God, I'm a sinner. It's always been in need of your grace. And I'm so glad that you poured it out on me. That even while I was a sinner, that you sent your son to die for me. God, there's people in this room that don't realize that. There's people that are outside of this room that absolutely don't understand that. And it's our job, the job that you've given us to go and reach them, to go and share this word with them, to go and love them as you loved us so that, God, they could experience your amazing love that you would send your son, our king, to die for us. Unbelievable. Unfathomable. We we can't wrap our heads around it, but God, you did it. And we're thankful for it, and we wouldn't be here without it. There's people that need to hear that, God, and I pray that they hear it today. Pray in your name. Amen. Before I even wrap up and I turn it over, I I want to challenge you on one more thing. Because you might say, well, thanks for bringing that. Or maybe you're not saying thanks. And you're saying, but what do we do? Because really, that was the question that I had. What do I do? How do I respond? 
It's the message from two weeks ago. We do it by loving God, loving others, loving one another within the church, abiding in Him and making disciples. That's what we do. Discipleship making, kind of an ugly process. Slow process. It's a one-on-one process where you're down and you're dirty and you are in the trenches with somebody and working through stuff. But you're doing it while loving God, while abiding in Him, loving others, loving one another. As you work through that, guess what? You get to be a part. We get to be a part of our lives changing first and us changing others. And that's how we go change the world, is one person at a time. One person at a time. That's my challenge to you today.